Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So, Mary, today on the podcast, we're talking to Natalie Brain, member of LCP's Macroeconomic Committee, uh, and we're talking all things forecasts and asset class views, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, But we recorded this four weeks ago now, and of course, not that much has happened since then, right? Well, I don't know. I feel like headlines have been pretty dominated by one topic in particular. Yeah, you probably would have had to be living on Mars for the last couple of weeks not to have heard about the <laughs> coronavirus and all the impact that that's had, both on a, obviously on a humanitarian level, but also, also on markets more recently. Mm. I think actually it's a pretty good illustration that often risk is what you don't see coming. And listeners, you can hear the interview with Natalie in a second, and you might detect a little bit of scepticism on my part about forecasts in the discussion. And, and this is why, really, I think things have a nasty habit of coming along and just sort of blowing away your carefully constructed forecast sort of right out of the water, I think. So that's, I think it's really an issue with forecasts. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's true. Although I do think Natalie did a really good job of defending the role of a forecast. You know, if you do the sort of really deep thinking to start with, you have a central forecast that you can update your views on the back of. You don't have to go back to basics every time. It's actually much easier to then update the forecast on more of an ongoing basis. And I think we, we said we'll have Natalie back on the show. So it'll be interesting to see how this yeah. particular event yeah. updates our forecast. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right. The the update will be interesting. So until then, we thought we'd just take a quick step back and remind listeners of a few things. We're recording this podcast on Monday, the 2nd of March. Most of our podcasts won't be this focused on on markets, but this one is. Mm. Just to recap a few things, obviously equities have fallen over the last week by between sort of 10 and 15%. Initially, equities were up a little bit today, but then have fallen back to, to Friday's levels. But if we put that in a wider context, you know, global equities have fallen back to levels we saw in Q3 last year, Q3 2019. Yeah. So in some ways, not dramatically different equity market levels to those that prevailed when most people were looking at their 2020 forecasts. Mm. Admittedly, fundamentals, economic fundamentals, a little bit different um, since then, potentially. Uh, but you might say, you know, you might say, look, we didn't feel too bad about equities back then in, Q- in Q3 2019. So, so should we really feel any worse about them today? So a few other facts that I sort of dug up over the weekend, equities on average do fall quite a lot intra-year. They have big peak-to-trough falls um, in most years, really. So actually, the average peak-to-trough intra-year fall that equities have is around about 15%, which is around about where we are today. Mm. Um, So roughly every other year, you see a peak-to-trough decline of this sort of magnitude. Mm. So it's not that out of the ordinary, Mm -hmm. Um, although the speed of the decline is a little bit. I think last week was the biggest weekly fall since uh, 2008. And we, we did see a number of days when, when equities were down 3% on a day. And statistically, we'd expect about four days per year when equities fall more than 3%. Um, right. So, so again, we've had them all. So we've far. had them all, yeah, potentially. Yeah. But again, a point really not out, of the, not out of the ordinary. No. And of course, you can argue in many ways, being paid for this sort of equity risk is, is part and parcel of, of equity investing. You know, Absolutely. We would all love to get equity returns without the risk, but that, but that's just not how it works. No. Because as I say, fundamentals might have changed. There might be more risk of a recession now. Um, but you can argue you're also being 
paid for it in terms of lower equity prices. So I guess mm. that's the big thing that all sorts of strategists and, and economists are weighing up at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess this is also potentially a good time to remind listeners of a piece that, that you've recently put out, Dan, which we'll link in the show notes. It was talking about the amount of bad news stories over the last decade. And I guess essentially giving a framework for how investors can react to what can be quite scary headlines. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we do. It feels like we do live in a, a world of event risk, quite frankly. When you go back over the last decade, there were a lot of events that, that dominated the news headlines, both financial events, things like the Eurozone crisis, things like the Greek debt crisis, mm. but also more geopolitical events like the Russian involvement in Crimea, the nuclear testing by North Korea and the trade war and all those sort of things. And despite all that, when you look back over that decade, it was a fantastic decade for, for equity investors. And so in trying to distill some, some sort of takeaways from that, what we were saying in the piece was it is all about setting out a clear framework for, for making your investment decisions that focuses on the long term, mm-hmm. you know, puts your objectives front and center and comes up with a strategy that, that's going to give you the returns to meet those objectives. Yeah. Um, and then just trying to systematically through time, you know, review progress and review any opportunities that might come up. Mm. Um, and to really think about the long-term return expectations of your asset classes and whether those have, have changed or not. Yeah. Um, and sort of putting quite a high bar on making any adjustments to your, to your long-term portfolio. Mm. And I, I guess at the same time, you know, something like as simple as rebalancing, yeah. you know, can really play its part there. You've agreed a strategic allocation. If equities get cheaper, buy them cheap, rebalance to your strategy. Yeah, exactly. Another thing is, I mean, it's sort of, it's funny, isn't it, how everyone in finance seems to be a viral epidemiologist right now, right? It's all <laughs> quoting transmission rates and fatality rates and those sort of things. Yeah, you can talk, including you, Dan. Well, yeah, well, yes, that is true. I did put a couple of tweets out over the weekend that sort of strayed into that territory a little bit. Look, I found a couple of interesting websites with some interesting data on. Again, we'll link to them in the show notes. One from John Hopkins um, University in the US that was just giving quite a good dashboard of, of data. So that if you're a bit of a data geek, you could follow some of the, the data around the virus in, in real time. But again, there were a couple of interesting points there that I think don't quite get made often enough. And one of them is actually that the total amount of individuals with the virus has actually been falling for the last few weeks as people recover in China Mm. um, and there's new cases in in, in Europe Um, and also the number of recovered cases each day has been more than the number of new cases for the the last week or so. So hopefully an inkling of good news there. Yeah, but then of course a lot of people came in and told me why that was rubbish. So that that, that sort of saw a quick end to my attempted career as a a commentator on um, on viruses. And I guess the other thing a lot of people do is, is refer back to previous, you know, similar similar experiences. So previous pandemics, the Spanish flu, I've seen countless headlines. Yeah, God, I mean, if I had a pound for every tweet I've seen looking back at the markets during the Spanish flu, then um, I might have enough to buy a uh, safety mask or something like that. But, <laughs> I mean, what were the takeaways from those? So I saw some quite interesting analysis. Um, I think it was JP Morgan um, that did the analysis. We can link again to the show notes. And it was looking at the average S&P returns during the last five global pandemics. Right. Yeah. And whilst on average... Um, you know, in all of them, equity markets did fall um, in, in the short term. Actually, recovery didn't take all that long and more than made up for the falls that, that happened. And, and the bigger the fall in, in the sort of frenzy of the pandemic, the bigger the recovery afterwards. So I thought that was quite interesting and I guess feeds back to the don't, you know, don't have a jerk reaction, but also rebalancing. Yeah, exactly. So, so giving comfort to investors of, of, of continuing with their, with, with their strategies and, and focusing on, on, the, on the long term. Yeah. And I, I think those five... That wasn't including the was that including the 1918 or not? I don't think I, I think it wasn't. Think it was. I think it was stuff since then. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, right. there were a few pieces that looked at, went back and looked at stock markets in in 1918. There were some differing takes, I think, on on what that actually meant. I mean, 
Some people were saying that stock markets didn't actually fall much in 1918, but then did fall later in 1920. Mm. And of course, there was just a lot lot of other things going on that period of time. So I, I just don't know whether... I just don't know whether one can read that much into that episode, but everyone's no. everyone's clearly trying to. No, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, I think we've established that for anyone who's tempted to, to make adjustments to a long-term investment portfolio here, you should certainly stop and think and ask yourself some key questions about whether that's the right thing uh, for the long term. Um, and I was, I was wondering about this, and I reckon that to, if you actually really want to make a call on markets from here, I think you've basically got to get five things all correct to make that work. So I think you've got to make a call on the medical aspects, things like transmission rates and fatalities. You've got to make a call on social aspects around quarantines and travel. Mm -hmm. You then got to make a call on the economic impacts of that around activity and earnings, a call on monetary impacts. So whether there's going to be a response from the Federal Reserve and central banks. Mm -hmm. And then finally, how all of that is going to play into a market impact. So, you know, I I think it's a pretty daunting challenge to try and get all of those things right and be different to the market, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's covered a little bit about equities. Yeah, I guess the other the other big impact we've seen is is on bonds. So um, yeah. we've seen high yield spreads increase quite substantially. Like equities, they were at historically tight spread levels, um, and you'll hear us come onto that in the discussion with Natalie. And really, they've only gone back to the levels that we saw in late 2019, which were consistent with quite longer term average levels. Yeah, and I suppose one of the issues that we, we were flagging earlier was the question of whether those high yield spreads were sufficient compensation for for mm. risk and mm. and maybe they'd got to a level where they weren't and and now then maybe they're slightly fairer fairer priced yeah. and again you know investors are being rewarded for that risk potentially more um, so yeah exactly so we've seen gilt and treasury yields have also fallen haven't they yeah. and obviously that's pushed up the prices of, of sovereign bonds mm-hmm. it looks like the market is expecting that the, the fed will cut rates a couple of times now in response mm-hmm. uh, maybe the bank of england as well and obviously that's um, positive for bond prices but of course it's bad news for people with fixed liabilities like pension, pension bonds. funds yeah absolutely dan i think you said this earlier it's it's looking like you know it's not just a humanitarian story now it's it's economic as well um, we saw the OECD come out, I think it was this morning, lowering global growth forecasts. And I think, you know, some of the longer term forecasts for equity growth were quite dependent on earnings. Potentially, this this hits that, that earnings growth. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess we'll let, the, we'll let the economists debate the exact impact on that, right? And, and maybe it's, it's probably too early to stay, but I suppose that hasn't stopped hasn't stopped a lot of people coming out with um, with views and stuff. And, and, and I mm-hmm. guess, you know, some people will say, well, you know, it, it might just be a shock to Q1 or Q2 earnings. Some people will say it could be the whole year. Some people will mm-hmm. say it could be, you know, sort of for a long time to come. So I, I guess we'll have to wait and see on where people land on the economic um, mm-hmm. impacts of this. Yeah. So one other thing Natalie mentions in our discussion is monetary policy, right? Um, and one of the big themes of last year being the, the sort of easing in monetary conditions that we saw that really supported risk assets in mm. the second half of the year. Yeah. Um, so I suppose a big question here could be what the policy response is from the Fed and other central banks, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think they can quite cure viruses just yet, but they can no, certainly no. impact markets. So uh, less have less ammo this year than they have potentially in the past. But Well, that's one of the issues, I guess, with the easing that took place last year. Mm. Um, I've heard people raise the question, say that there, there is just less room to, to ease than there was in the past. But it, it, it does look like the market certainly believes they, they will now. Yeah, yeah. So I guess all this aside, I, th- I think Natalie made some really interesting points in, in our interview with her um, a month ago on, on forecasts, a lot of which still very much relevant today. So without further ado, should we move on to the main, main piece? So today on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Natalie Brain. Natalie is a member of LCP's macroeconomic team. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
Would you like to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit about what you do in your area of expertise at LCP? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So as well as advising clients on all sorts of different investment matters, I suppose I'm here to talk about my role on the macro research team, Mm -hmm. um, where we talk to various economists each quarter, form our own view of the world and global outlook, and then feed that into advice and asset class views for clients. And so before we get started, we've been asking everyone else, what's one thing people should know about you that they won't find on your CV or LinkedIn profile? I suppose... For me, I'd say I've also got a very creative side. So it's something I've I've always enjoyed. I try to bring it out in my work where I can, but also pursue various hobbies to to get that side, keep that side going. So what kind of hobbies would fall into that? I've actually taken up a ceramics class. So learning how to throw and attempting to make nice shaped bowls and pots. Wow, (laughs) that's awesome. Okay, well, let's get into the heart of our discussion here today about your role in our macroeconomic team about producing forecasts. And I have to say, Natalie, this time of the year, I've read so many 2020 forecasts that, to be honest, if you're giving me a quid every time I read a forecast, I might have just about enough to buy a round of drinks here by now. (laughs) So I suppose the question is, does the world need one more economic forecast and what are we trying to do with ours? You're right. There's a lot of forecasts out there. Everyone will have their forecast their own view but we still think it's really important that we form our own view and that that feeds through to the advice that we give to our clients i suppose we use it in, in various ways it's important to have overall outlook um, to have our opinions on what we think as well and what sort of things are you looking to forecast there then in sort of general economic variables is it inflation growth those sort of things or how, how specific are we getting Yeah, absolutely. So we look at all of that. I suppose our view is very qualitative. So rather than setting up specific forecasts for this year, we think GDP growth is going to be X percent. We look very much at big picture themes, stories that we think will unplay over the next year. And we do that by forming various scenarios. So we have a central case scenario, which we use and assign a weighting to. And we also have an upside and downside scenarios. So we use that to structure how we think about the world and how we think things are looking in terms of the balance between the three of those and use that to form our judgment. And I guess if we think back to, you've been on this team for a number of years, if we think back to sort of this time last year, how right do we tend to be and does it matter how right we are, I guess? I suppose we evolve our views as we go. So each quarter, when we sit down and talk to various economists, we reassess and look at what we were saying last quarter and, and evolve things so that it's a continual evolution of our view. Mm-hmm. I suppose that you can pick on areas where we have been more right or have been, have been less right. But the way we split between our central case and the upside and downside scenarios, I think we really feel that our central case should be and is more right at reflecting um, what we think is going to happen. And then we have kind of outside risks or outside upside sitting inside of that. So just to make it more tangible, so what were some of the things we were talking about this time last year in terms of risk that we were seeing back then or the way we thought things might play out? So this time last year, I suppose we started the year with a not overly positive view, but steady, but seeing softer global growth come through. So that was probably what we're looking for the year ahead. We became increasingly more negative as the year went on and seeing various risks kind of emerge. US, China, um, trade wars really Mm -hmm. continue and drag on for a long time. Seeing manufacturing sectors struggle, develop market growth generally and recession risk picking up. And so that I suppose we last year we evolved our view to become more negative until central banks stepped in with much more accommodative monetary policy to support markets. 
and then only as of now we're seeing growth levels steady out a bit more. Okay, so a bit more positive as we look forward for this year. More steady, so still seeing very soft global growth, but pushing some of the risks further out rather than being more near-term risks, which had picked up towards the end of last year. You mentioned central banks already. I mean, that's a common theme, obviously, in other economic forecasts. Mm. I was listening to a podcast from Deutsche Bank actually just this morning. They were talking about having seen quite a close correlation between the expansion of the Fed balance sheet and equities and and those sort of things. So it's a big theme for, for economic forecasts. Is that playing into your thinking at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I think last year really was just the big switch of of monetary policy. So when we got to the end of 2018, it was a case of central banks are tightening. We're seeing that trend come through. And then as markets became more concerned or outlook became more fragile, there really was that big switch. And so we're seeing that come through in terms of support for asset classes, for equity performance, making conditions much easier for investors and for, for asset classes. Yep. And turning to the, to the year ahead then, do we see that sort of continuing through the year or is there some suggestion that that might be easing off, that support level might be easing off during the year? So I think there's still a little bit further to go in terms of support. So perhaps we might see one more interest rate cut from the US. The UK is very dependent on what's happening with Brexit. Well, but hang on a second. I thought Brexit was done now. We're out, aren't we? Isn't that the end of it? <laughs> oh, there's a lot further to go. There's, there's a lot, lot further to go. So some things have yet been agreed, but the trade agreements is the ah. kind of big uncertainty from here. Mm. So what exactly will be negotiated? Mm. It still remains unknown. And how much can be negotiated within a year's time frame is the really big challenge because... These kind of trade agreements take multi years and looking at the current one year period, which is the transition period that's been agreed at the moment, we're looking to the end of this year, but that looks incredibly ambitious for right. everything that needs to be done. And I guess at the time of recording, we're in phase one, is it, of US-China with potentially a number of further phases to go. So I guess maybe is it the year of trade issues to solve, do you think? Yeah, we've had the phase one deal agreed. And I think that's Markets have taken that well. Mm-hmm. It will take longer to feed through into kind of economic data by the nature of it. But in terms of that whole relationship, there is a lot, lot further to go and a lot of the more difficult parts of negotiations still to come. And mm. um, even the amounts that have been agreed in the phase one deal. So the purchases that China has agreed to make from the US yeah. is huge, absolutely huge. So there's going to be obstacles to seeing how they can achieve that and I think it's pushing trade tensions further out so looking at later this year or early next year rather than yeah being I guess resolved through that deal. And so you've already mentioned the risks to the central view a little bit and you've mentioned a few things I suppose you've you've said that we're still going to be talking about Brexit and there's obviously risks there you've talked about trade China US presumably that's the sort of risk we'd see presumably the ending of accommodative monetary policy that would be another risk you see and any other big risks on the horizon that you're looking at? Yeah, so those are all risks. I suppose in Europe, there's a lot of challenges just generally. So particularly with manufacturing sector, we've seen be very weak mm. and the auto sector in particular. Right. We've got a lot of changing dynamics in that sector. The Eurozone is very vulnerable to that, particularly Germany as the key mm. kind of driver of Eurozone growth. Mm. And just the pure divergence between the different countries in the Eurozone. There's still kind of various political challenges. Employment comes down, but it, there's just huge disparity between different countries in the Eurozone. So plenty of challenges there. And particularly if the central bank, European central bank can do 
enough to support the region. They're trying to bring in more supportive policy, but taking interest rates more negative isn't having much of an effect. And the limits on assets out there for them to purchase through QE um, yeah. are just limited. And I guess there is a bit of a, I always have this kind of semi-philosophical question where we're sort of trying to convert this all this economic data. And you're right, that economists love numbers. So I'm quite pleased you're not coming on here to saying lots of numbers <laughs> and throwing them at me. How do we then convert that into sort of asset classes? Because I'm not sure I always see a particular correlation and I'm not sure that the market moves because fundamentals of economics change. So how do we kind of marry those two things up? Yeah, so I suppose we set out our economic scenarios, which I've spoken about, looking ahead for the next 12 to 18 months. And we discuss those and key risks that we're seeing out there, um, changing movements, so in sports central bank policy. And then we have a discussion around that, which then feeds straight into another discussion around asset class views. I think what's going on in the world is a huge driver for what we're seeing in investment markets and what we're seeing in asset returns. And so we really see that as forming the basis of our view on what is more positive as an asset class to invest in or less positive. So the basic thinking there, am I right in saying it's if we're seeing an overall supportive economic environment, we're expecting that to be supportive of growth focused return assets like equities, like corporate bonds, those sort of things. So we're expecting reasonable returns from those asset classes in that environment. But if risks are coming to the fore, then there could be risk to that. Yeah, absolutely. Any particular big events that people should watch out for this year that you think could be particularly pivotal in terms of not much going on this year, really, is there? <laughs> <laughs> we have this every year. <laughs> there's always things that you expect and then there's always others well, that, that's the issue, that come it? out yeah. that you've got no yeah. idea about as well. We've touched on a couple of them already, but so how EU-UK trade negotiations go yeah. and particularly if the transition period is extended. Yeah. So the current deadline for that is the end of June to decide to extend the transition periods after yes. December. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. right. So the EU have said now we'll give you up till the end of June to decide if you want to extend it right. with the potential to extend for another two years. That sounds very early to be forced to make that call. You know, six, six yeah. months, there's a lot that can happen between June and December. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's one view that if we don't take up the offer by the end of June, that it would be hard to extend it beyond that. But in my opinion, I think that could still change. And that's relevant in particular for which asset classes? So what that's relevant for UK rates, is it? So gilts, UK bonds, those sort of things, UK equities to some extent? Is that the sort of thinking there that's what's going to drive it? Yeah, absolutely. So very UK-focused assets. Sterling is very reflective of sentiment of the UK generally. So we see moves moves in sterling, moves in UK asset classes. So gilts, like you say, interest rates, what the Bank of England would do in terms of rates. UK equity market is more global driven. So there's a bit of a balance there. But then there's obviously a lot that goes in way of sentiment around UK assets. But actually, it's true when you listen to some of the other global, even some of the globally focused forecasts, a lot of people are citing Brexit, even Mm. in their global forecasts, I guess, as a risk. So some people are seeing that as a risk to global equities, not just the not just the UK thing, I guess. right? Yeah, I'd say looking at a global level, there's greater risks out there, which yeah. for one, I say US-China trade tensions. And I guess we saw um, that a bit last year, didn't we, in terms of when equities had their sort of more volatile moments, didn't perfectly coincide with news on Brexit, actually. Right. And a few of my clients were sort of saying, sitting here in the UK, well, why have equities tanked now? And it's sort of like, well, actually, it's so global these days that 
you really need to look at the bigger picture. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what I try and remind clients I talk to as well, yeah. with some being particularly worried about Brexit. Looking at their portfolios and looking at some of their holdings that is more globally driven. So US-China tensions we've, we've spoken about. Coming up this year is also US election. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was only a matter of time until I got mm. onto that one. Do they actually matter for, for the economy and for equity markets? Do they tend to? Yeah, I'd say it does. It will depend on who the Democrat runner is. So we don't know that as I'm talking now. Who that is could very hugely depend on, kind of link through to potential market impacts, equity impacts, and, and how that kind of general sentiment about outlook or what policy could be brought in. Right. And is that because there's a feeling that there'll be pro-business or negative business, corporate tax rates might change, like those sort of things? Yeah, exactly. There's a yeah huge scope of different policy impacts which would come through and could could come through and could impact markets. So first step is to know who is running against Trump. And then as we get closer on, it will be looking at yeah, what the ultimate outcome is. And is, is anyone even bothering to try and forecast probabilities of Trump winning or not yet, even though we don't know who he's running against? Is anyone out there trying to form a view or still just seems in the balance? Someone must be. <laughs> so from what I've heard, it's still a bit early. I think we will see those come out more when we know who he's running against. Yeah. Um, okay. So we will be, it's going through the primary soon or mm. potentially at that moment. Once we know who he's running against, there'll be more in the way of forecasting once some initial votes have, have mm. kind of gone through. I mean, we've touched a bit already on the fact that generally when we're talking about asset classes and investment markets, there is a big sort of global play. Globalisation has obviously been a massive theme in for many, many years. To what extent is it really, really important, you know, US politics versus European politics? Or is this just becoming all a massive global story? To what extent do different regions still sort of play their different parts? I think there is still divergence between... I suppose a large difference between looking at developed markets and emerging markets with Mm. just such different characteristics, such different qualities, and that can feed directly into what you see in terms of investments, returns, level of risk that you're taking. And so I think, although everything has become a lot more connected, I think that we are still at a time where there's big drivers by different regions. But saying that, you can look at the size of the region as to how important it is at a global level, just as that feeds into a composition of equity portfolio you might have or index with global markets. What about other sort of popular themes at a kind of society level, things like inequality, things like climate change? I mean, do those manifest somehow as economic risks over that time frame or or would you say they're just a bit more longer term? Yeah, so we, in the scenario work that we do, we focus more on what we call a medium time frame. So Mm. looking at two to three years, I'd say a lot of those are longer term kind of themes, but Mm. I do expect will come through. So we often talk about challenges to longer term growth as changing demographics, high debt levels, Mm. generally. Climate change is another one which we do look at, we do talk to economists about, but it's probably not coming up in our two to three year view quite yet. But we Mm. are discussing how it feeds in, how it impacts outlook and, and asset class views. What about something, I guess, more left field, something like artificial intelligence? Does that sort of stuff, does that feed through into your discussions at this point? Yeah, we don't focus a lot on on that kind of thing in our regular discussions. But I suppose as a bigger overall trend, potentially for huge impacts, I suppose where we'd see that on a on an economic level would be looking at kind of employment markets, labour data, with that being such a huge support and, and driver to 
GDP growth, consumer spending being absolutely fundamental. So, and that's completely reliant on labour markets and employment level. So potentially there, I suppose, not something that we focus on a lot in our um, kind of medium term view. Yeah. Should we move on and turn to talking a bit more about asset class views in particular asset classes? Perhaps you could start by just talking a little bit about the framework we're using there and sort of what we're trying to do, because obviously we're working with a lot of our clients to put in place long term portfolios and take a long term view on these sort of asset classes. So you might well say, well, well, hang on, why are we trying to put a shorter term view in place? So do you want to talk to that briefly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I suppose in terms of our framework, we have four different categories of asset classes, which we break down our views into. So looking across equity assets, credit assets, real assets and absolute return asset views. So those are the four kind of categories that we break down all of our asset views or categorise them within. Mm -hmm. And then for each of the underlying or specific assets within those asset classes, we give them a rating for our outlook. So going from a double plus as the most positive rating, so single plus, single minus to double minus. And, and how you didn't say neutral there. So is there is there a neutral or not? There's not a neutral. So we used to have a traffic light system, but we removed that. So we removed any amber zone or neutral rating. We have to, to get off the fence, basically. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Get off, get off the fence. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that makes discussions maybe slightly longer than they were before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, longer, but more interesting. And I think a better outcome as yeah. a result of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, so you said there are four areas. So you said equities, credit, real assets and absolute return. Why don't we run through this? Why don't we start with equities? You said the economic environment sort of broadly supportive, but obviously equities are at pretty high levels. Certainly US equities making new highs and reasonably high valuations. So where are we, where are we seeing equities from here, given that backdrop? Yeah, so equity assets, we do continually talk about and revisit frequently and have a lot of debates about this. So mm. looking over the last year where equity markets have continued to rise, we're looking at all-time high levels and with a lot of risks out there, we constantly revisit mm. to say, do we still think that they're, they're positive? Global developed markets are a single plus. We're continuing are, to be positive on, we, on global equities broadly. Developed markets, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's the same for emerging markets. Right. And okay. where our view slightly differed was for UK Equities. Okay, right. So around the time of where Brexit uncertainty had really spiked, we removed that to a, a single minus just on the basis of there being so much uncertainty out there, businesses okay. not being able to plan ahead, spending kind of capex investment really going down, uncertainty for, for the market from there. Okay, so we have been negative on UK equities based on Brexit uncertainty, but positive globally. Yeah. But has that changed? So it has very recently. So following the UK election in December, we have changed our view. That's largely based on not seeing so much of a reason between having a differential between wider global developed markets and right. UK specifically, and really on a valuations basis. Yeah. Um, so looking at, at basis like price to earnings, dividend yield, we're seeing it as a lot more positive. We're seeing it as cheaper when you compare it to broader developed markets. Okay. And we're seeing it as a better outlook from here. Actually, looking at the UK market, the dividend yield that you get has increasingly risen and is actually at a fairly good level. Yeah, four okay. point something percent, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah that's versus right. two percent something for global. Yeah, average. around mm. around that. Yeah. So good value, I guess. Question that springs to my mind there is, so we've now got the same rating for developed, including UK and for emerging markets. 
does the kind of wording of emerging markets still make sense? I guess what would lead us to have different views for the two, for developed versus emerging? Yeah, I think they do have very different characteristics. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we like them for probably for different reasons. Okay. But emerging markets are, are inherently much more risky. So I suppose we're, it's judging whether we're getting the level of return back for them, from them to justify the level of risk being, being taken or whether there's particular risks in emerging markets that we'd feel that actually there's too much for us to be faithful on it. But we still see us having opportunities there to, to gain value. And I guess whenever I'm speaking to my clients about emerging market investing, I kind of try and encourage them to think of it as not very liquid. It is. They can buy and sell it quite easily because it's still equities. But if they think about it as I want to stay in this for, for 10 years, I think you can kind of live through some of that volatility that you mentioned because of those risks that are maybe more inherent yeah, in those markets. It, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, let's turn to the second of those four asset categories we talked about. And let's talk a little bit about credit. Um, Firstly, we should probably just do a bit of an explainer on what what are the different areas of credit we we sort of look at. Because you think about credit, you might naturally think of corporate bonds. So it's companies lending money in the form of bonds. But I suppose that the market has has gone quite far beyond that, hasn't it, to offer a number of different sort of strategies and different kind of different assets and strategies at different risk levels. Yeah, absolutely. So like you say, there's a lot of different credit assets that we have that sits in within our credit asset views overall. So some of them, like you've said, so corporate bond and high yield being different. And high yield, sorry, sorry, I have to do a jargon buster for a second. (laughs) What do we mean by high yield? So non-investment grade bonds, so those that have lower credit ratings or seen as more risky, essentially, or sub-investment grade. And therefore give you a high yield, hence the name. Yes, Yeah, exactly. But I suppose dynamics in those markets at the moment is, again, the discussion around are you getting enough return to justify the level of risk being taken? So when we look at in corporate bond markets, the credit spread. So that's looking at the additional level of return above a government bond to account for the higher risk for lending to companies. We've seen those levels and those returns come down a lot over the last few years. I hear a lot of people talk about the credit cycle, and and I'm sure I've heard people saying that we're late in the credit cycle for at least the last five years. And I'm never quite (laughs) sure what they mean. But what do you think people mean when they talk about the credit cycle and being late in the credit cycle? So the credit cycle, I suppose, talks about or focuses on availability of lending to borrowers. So just as you might talk about a business cycle, which will go through periods of expansion or contraction, you can see the same kind of movements in credit, so in availability of lending. The two are slightly distinct, so they're not not exactly the same, but you'll see movements in, in that. So being late in the credit cycle, essentially looking at the risks of credit conditions turning much more negative, um, you might see defaults or pick up and see uh, much more much more risk out there. Yeah, because we've been in an environment where defaults have been incredibly low for really the better part of a decade now, haven't we? That's, yeah. that's been where we've been. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I guess, when looking at credit markets, key things you need to think about is, will I get my money back? Am I being paid enough for the risk that I'm taking that I might not get it back? Yeah. And what security do I have against that? Yeah. So some of our credit asset views have turned a bit more negative based on right. us not feeling that that credit spread or that the return you're getting is enough to justify the level of risk out there. And so result to um, take an example on that then, so high yields, is that a negative? Yes, that's one of them. Yeah, as is corporate bonds as well. Okay. Right. Yeah. Are there any good places in, in the bond market or in the credit space? 
Yeah, so I, I suppose some of the areas that we like are those areas that are more secure or have that level of security okay. um, when we talk about risk in, in credit markets. So private credit is one area which we're quite favourable on being private or direct lending. But the area of that market that we like is really real asset backed lending and um, infrastructure debt or real estate debt, okay. where there is that security or that, that asset sitting behind that. As, as and, as, so this would be security. lending to an infrastructure company would it, or a property company on the private market side, so not a listed security. Yeah. You'd be lending to that company with the assets, which we, they're going to go and use that to buy an asset. Is that how it works? That's, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I guess if they default, because we've just talked about default being a sort mm. of risk with, with credit, if they default, I get the property. Is that the kind of, that's the story there? Yeah, there's the security of an asset. It's backed by an asset. So yeah, there's that security level there. How do clients typically sort of gain access to those strategies? So there are particular funds that focus on particular areas. How does that tend to work? There's various vehicles out there to access those for specialist areas. So asset-backed securities is another one that we've got as a single plus. And again, different structure, but with that underlying asset to our security. Asset-backed securities, that's ABS, isn't it? So that's the sort of the bad boy of the the 2008 crisis, if you like. But are we sort of Mm. saying that that's now now changed and that asset class is now something that, that investors could get comfortable with? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the name of it kind of rings alarm bells for some people, but there's very big differences in markets between the US and Europe. And looking at the European market, there's historically been very low default levels or, or issues there. So there are pockets of it that we look into in our research and that we rate highly. When we say asset-backed securities, can we just clarify, kind of, Dan, if you think of an asset-backed security, what are we actually doing? Where's my money going and, and what's happening to it? Well, normally you'd get a manager to manage it on your behalf. And what they would do, they would invest the money which would be invested as debt into these special purpose vehicles which get created. And those vehicles would then lend money to consumers quite often. So it could be things like credit cards, Mm -hmm. it could be auto loans, it could be mortgage-backed securities. And so it's not, technically you're not lending money directly to those consumers, but you're lending money to a vehicle which then goes on to lend that money. And you have some security because that loan to your consumer then becomes an asset that sits in that vehicle which is the asset part of, of asset-backed securities. Okay, so that does sound suspiciously like the big short. So I guess the, the warning before from Natalie that actually different markets operate differently and don't be put off by the name, I guess, it sort of comes up here quite relevant. Yeah, I think that's right. I think people are right to be sceptical, of course, about those sort of assets. But I think a lot of things have changed in those markets over those 10 years. There are a lot of practices that were bad that have been seen as sort of being negative. But if you've got good security behind it, then there's reasons you can be confident about those investments, I guess. Should we move on to one of the other sort of big asset buckets, real assets, maybe? What are our views there? So we've generally got fairly positive views on real assets and particularly on the kind of secure or contractual income type assets. So long lease property, for example. Right. And I'm sorry, just quickly clarify what we mean by that. So long lease property, that's investing in what sort of properties? So it's the, the type of property can vary, but it's looking at the longer term time period where you have contractual income being paid on it. So the portfolios hold supermarkets is one example that right. fits in there quite a lot. So they've um, signed so a 20 year very, lease and the rent goes up with inflation every year and they, they're signed up to that on day one type stuff. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess a lot of value of that is in that recurring income. You're not sort of yeah. taking a punt on London property prices sort of thing in, in terms of those assets. Yeah. Yeah. Secure income property, you mentioned. Yeah. Anything else being, we mentioned there? Being one of them. Global property is another right. asset. So we've got rated as a, as a positive. We've moved our 
outlook for UK property down a little bit, again, based on okay. a lot of uncertainty and movements in kind of central London kind of spaces and retail being the big mover yeah. there. Right, yeah. Otherwise, infrastructure assets are the other one that yeah, we make that's been highly. a massive theme, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, exactly. So positive on those. Again, these type of assets provide a lot of diversification against other like equity assets, infrastructure often being linked to inflation. So those kind of increases and more secure or stable income coming from those as well. Is so, that something you've, you've looked at for your clients, Mary? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really heavily. And actually, yeah, I was just about to say, I guess it feels like it's been the sort of buzzword for quite a while now. You know, there's been a lot of kind of encouragement for trustees to think about infrastructure. And I've absolutely found some really good opportunities with some of my clients in that space. But from an asset class outlook perspective, when has that moment passed, I guess? Is it still as attractive as it was a couple of years ago? Or, you know, are we crowding in too far and pricing stops being attractive? I think that's a big challenge, isn't it? I guess it's so difficult because... It's such a diverse asset class. I mean, what you're talking mm. about, everything from solar panels to ports around the world to bridges to toll roads to pipelines. So I guess it is yeah. a really difficult thing to take a view on. I know the managers that we that we raise and we use there, we're re- relying on them to try and keep some discipline with the with the sort of the prices they're they're paying for assets. Yeah. But I guess in a world where income is valued more and more highly because rates are so low. I guess that's one thing that continues to drive that view. Is that, is that fair to say, mm. Natalie? Yeah, I suppose that's fair. And I suppose what you're seeing in terms of, kind of spending policy or spending on infrastructure, so the level of fiscal support yeah. out there, can also be, be an influencer. Mm. Well, well, I mean, um, and, and politically, there's a lot, apparently there's a lot of will behind that in the UK now to talk, financing a bit more infrastructure, obviously talk of HS2 and, and those sort of things. Mm. I suppose it's yet to be seen whether private capital can play a role there or not, but it clearly is... It is a topic that we'll see further supply in those assets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks very much, Natalie. We're coming to the end of our time together. And just as we start to wrap up, how can people find you, get access to your articles and your thinking, etc.? So I suppose on LCP website or on LinkedIn. Yep, great. And do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Books, articles, podcasts, movies? Doesn't have to be investment focused. Sure. A podcast I listen to a lot is The Economist podcast. They bring out lots of different ones and they quite often have a a summary of a week so they'll give you three a summary of three various things going on in the world of that week oh that's Um, helpful if you're a bit short on time yeah i've long train journeys so it's a really good way of just keeping on top of what's going on and they're they're done really well in my opinion okay then so next we have our speed round which everyone loves and just so you know the context here is i'm going to give you a series of choices between two things and in each case the question is which do you back for the next decade and some of our guests have been sitting on the fence and i'm going to encourage you strongly not to do that <laughs> as, as a okay. member of our macroeconomic team then yeah. of course we won't hold these against you at all but um, we, we secretly might <laughs> I'll try my best. okay so speed round european equity versus chinese equity chinese equity bitcoin versus gold gold naughty's music versus 2010's music <laughs> naughty's stormzy versus ed sheeran <laughs> neither <laughs> Economics versus computer science as a degree. Economics. And finally, AI, threat or opportunity? This is the one where people have sat on the fence. No, they? no, everyone gets um, on the fence. Opportunity. Okay. Thank you. And finally, from me, Natalie, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? I suppose thinking about this from macroeconomic and, and mm-hmm. outlook perspective, I'd probably say just how big a role politics has had and, and plays in investment okay. markets which i think has increased and become a, a much 
bigger thing, much bigger driver. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Natalie. That's been a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for your time. And hopefully we'll see some of your pottery creations perhaps in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, do please leave us a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference and we really do appreciate it. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.